0: Today we'll be discussing the television show Community, and we'll be discussing virtual medicine. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs.
1: Not a real doctor.
0: Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ollie from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ollie picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we will be debating the merits of the television show community, and then we'll be debating
1: the merits of virtual medicine. You excited about this episode there, Ollie? Not as excited as you are, buddy. Your eyebrows have never gone so high up. You're You're pumped. Now I'm more pumped. Actually, you got me more excited about the thing I was already kind of I excited I am
0: about. excited today because it's a bit different today. We're going to be actually, it's a bit more of a debate. We certainly have different viewpoints on these two topics. You know, this will do a bit of facts, but it's going to be a lot of opinion, a lot of opinion today. There's going to be a lot of, you suck, and then Asif going, I don't. And then crying, sobbing into the microphone.
1: TLDR. You suck. I don't. There you go. But no, it'll be more fun than that. Don't you TLDR us? Come on, stick around. We're going to have some fun.
0: Okay, Ali, I wanted to talk to you about Community. This is a beloved show that aired at NBC several years ago. They just announced for Community that they're going to start filming a movie in June. And those of you who've seen the show know there's a recurrent catchphrase, six seasons in a movie that is uttered by Abed, one of the characters on it. So Hmm. they did do six seasons. This is the movie. It's filming in June, apparently. Joe McHale has said that recently.
1: On Jimmy Kimmel Live, that's right. And many fans quite excited. I, I can't help but think people were like... Unless you've really been following, you know, I don't follow as closely as I could, I suppose, but I really thought, hey, six seasons is mm-hmm. still pretty good. I didn't see a movie coming. I didn't see this as, a, as an option, but I'm happy. I'm happy. I'll see this. The reason why we're talking about it is um, I'm not a huge fan of Community. You suck! See? There we go. You're supposed to say I don't. We had a thing. Um, we had a whoops. rhythm we were going to go into. Let me just start this conversation by saying that absolutely baffles me. That, that would be the case. And you watched this show. You've yeah. you given this show a chance. You didn't just watch like season four, no, episode two out seriously. of nowhere. You you started it from I the have beginning.
0: given this show
1: several chances.
0: I've watched over 10 episodes total. And you're like, well, you haven't watched enough. Come on. I'm not watching that many, but I've watched no, several. I'm
1: not, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy to say that you haven't watched enough. I just want yeah. to make sure that you watched it in order close to the time when it came out. You were part of the... You're not going there five years later or 10 years later. I
0: watched maybe a couple episodes when it came out. I've just seen several over the years. And then what would happen is when certain episodes would come out and they would get a lot of press in like entertainment weekly or, or publications like that, I'd be like, oh, he's talking about this show or the AV club, which which is a website I go to all the time. I'm like, oh, this got like an A grade for this episode. I'll check out this episode. So I have given it many, many chances and well, maybe let's let's talk a bit about the show itself, and then we can get into my opinions of it afterwards. So, this show was created by Dan Harmon, who was known for Rick and Morty. Are you a Rick and Morty
1: fan? Man, I didn't know where to watch it. Everybody who I love and respect in the comedy world has nothing but great things. Just huge accolades for Rick and Morty, but I didn't know... Where to get it. I'm not tech savvy. And right now, you know, we have friends who are like creating like fake VPNs and fake, you know, internet addresses so they can watch anything. And they're like, oh, amateur. I, the few times that I've downloaded things illegally some pop-up comes up and I'm like, I don't know how to answer this. What if I answer this wrong? Too much stress. So from a legal legitimate standpoint, I never knew how to watch Rick and Morty. I caught some of it, obviously clips of it, probably, you know, YouTube clips, love the vibe, love the energy of it. But, but the, the real answer... Short answer is no, I have not watched Rick and Morty. Yeah, I've probably only seen one episode as
0: well, but- I don't know which one's Rick and which one's Morty. (laughs) Me neither, so I'm sure we'll get hate mail for that. So Dan Harmon after Rick and Morty then went and created Community. So do you know the story behind this, like why he chose this particular setting and this kind of study group as, as a focus?
1: I don't remember how his life coincided with some of this, but it is semi-autobiographical. Yeah, he was, I guess- Why was he in a community college? He had a girlfriend. I
0: think they were kind of on the rocks. and, And so he enrolled in this Glendale Community College in Northern Los Angeles. So he would take a Spanish class together with his girlfriend, and then that would help with their relationship. And during the course of that, he got into a study group. And he became friends with all the people, even though they were vastly different and really had nothing in common other than the study group, And he kind of bonded with them. And then that's, that was the impetus for this show.
1: I do respect the taking the Spanish class and staying local. I mean, many people will tell you Dan Harmon, is he the right type of genius for you? I don't know, but really like operates at a genius level, very, very bright at the very least. So with many opportunities open to a guy like this, for him to stay at a community college for the sake of a relationship. I like it on paper. That sounds exciting. It's yeah. a good choice. Yeah. Of course the relationship did not work out, but that's another story. Altogether.
0: So the premise is that basically this guy, Jeff Winger, he's a disbarred attorney because he's discovered that he didn't actually have a bachelor's degree, which he said he did. So he has to go back. A to lawyer mine. lied. Exactly. So he had to go to community college and that's when he meets this, this group of people and then hijinks ensue.
1: Oh, I just caught the thing community is about Greendale Mm -hmm. and Dan Harmon actually went to Glendale. Wow. Let's not stray too far at all from the real thing. I just picked up on that, that it's Greendale community college in the show. One thing I found
0: was interesting. I'm curious what you think about this. Dan Harmon is really, is a showrunner of this show. He was actually kind of fired, I think, in season four, and then he was rehired afterwards. With the last season itself, the season six came back on Yahoo Shorts or something like that, like a Yahoo streaming, you know? That was the final season. I don't know if I watched too many episodes from that season, but it sounds like a bit of a... He certainly has his own viewpoint about things. So, for example, you know, he had a script writers, and he had a script room, and and writer's room, I guess I should say, and... But he would rewrite all the scripts, like after the writer said, okay, here's our final draft. He would just go through it again. I don't know. Is that common in these writers' rooms?
1: I mean, I think there is probably a controlling aspect here that you're dealing with, with Dan Harmon, where for sure, you know, if you're signing off on a script, you're going back through it. And you're maybe making final changes as, you know, you're sort of executive on this. You're saying, well, I don't like that. I don't like this. I'll change this. Rewriting the entire script, I don't think is reasonable. I don't think that's what he was doing, but it would come back to him for tweaks and changes and rewrites of certain scenes or yeah, interactions, dialogue, perhaps. I think that's relatively normal. I think what happens is because everybody was trying to find dirt on Dan Harmon, you'll find a lot more of these kind of things. Whereas that may be the case for, you know, a hundred different showrunners, but we just don't know about them because they are
0: you know, well, I want to ask you about hearts. that, which you just brought up in a second, but he also uses this story circle method of writing. And I know you've obviously written a book, you've been involved in writing on TV shows. So have you heard of this story circle? I'll, I'll, I'll link to it and I'll try and tweet it out as well. This, Have you heard of this story circle?
1: I have, I have. So I had these two sort of Bibles uh, when I first started writing because I had no real direction or training as I should, I had, I had no direction in life mm-hmm. in general, but that's a different story. I had no no training to fall back on for writing. And I was invited to write scripts with friends who had some ideas. And sometimes all you want is like, hey, we're both funny people. We get along. Let's write something. It's just, you know, you wish life could be that simple. Sometimes you're called into a room and you're paid well, but it's like the working environment is toxic or like very, very unpleasant. And it takes all the fun out of what you love to do. So sometimes, and it's happened a number of times with me, we're a couple of buddies. We like each other. We like each other's vibes. Let's write. So I needed two things to look into. And if anybody's interested in story writing, I think these are two good places to start. And much has been written about how they are incomplete or inadequate. All that is not written by new writers. All that is written by people with 10, 20, 30 years in the business. So you don't have to worry too much about the thoughts of, you know, broken, depressed white men in the business. Those are usually the ones upset with these formats. So for screenwriting in particular, the book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder really sets up screenwriting in a great way. And for for sitcoms, and this is a dated reference, definitely, but it's a book called Elephant Bucks. And Elephant Bucks was a it's an interesting name. It refers to the amount of money you'll make if you know how to write properly. TV sitcoms in particular. It's written by Sheldon Bull. And I think Sheldon, I don't remember exactly, you know, but he's New Heart Show and wrote for like Cheers, possibly, you know, big deal in the 80s, early 90s. So I I imagine it's dated, but I feel like it's a great introduction to a framework, how sitcoms work, you know, and you learn some basic things about, for example, if you see a gun in Act One, that gun has to go off by Act Three. It just has to go off. But the gun is a metaphor for so many things. I got it it's not really just the gun, right? Yes. The gun also has to go off, but if you see some couple kiss in the first act, they have to sort of consummate or something has to happen more with them later. You can't just be like left wondering what happened to that thing that suggested yeah. something. And then the suggestion never turned into that. So you always have to be thinking about a dozen things like that as you're writing, but also the framework of what usually happens in act one, what usually happens in act two. Having that knowledge and that background, I was interested when I heard about Dan Harmon's style here and, it's interesting. It's like if that's what works for him, it's great. Basically, you start with there's eight points of this wheel, and the wheel is obviously a circle. so they, somebody's in a comfort zone, your lead character is comfortable, but they want something, then they enter an unfamiliar situation, then they adapt to that situation, then they get what they wanted, then they pay a heavy price for getting what they wanted. Then they return back to their familiar uh, familiar situation and then They have changed. It is good to have something like this either. I mean, a Dan Harmon doesn't need to put this on a wall. This can be just in his brain at all times. He created this system, but I find it good to have this kind of posted because sometimes you just start having fun with something and you forget. No, no, no. Are we following our model? Are we following? So it's a good thing. I don't think inherently there's anything wrong with this, if it suits you for your writing. It keeps you on track. Yeah. I'll comment a bit about how I
0: think Dan Harmon and his writing style contributes to me not liking the show as much, but I just want to get back to one thing you talked about. You said there was some controversy about Dan Harmon with regards to like allegations and.
1: Yeah. So I had actually, I'm coming off as though I'm some kind of community super fan, but I'd actually stopped watching somewhere in the third season Not because I didn't like it, just because, you know, life was happening and I just wasn't able to watch it as much. And our good buddy Q, a friend of both Asif's and I, he's the guy when I would go to his house after a busy day, if I was catering, whatever I was doing, go to his house. That was what we'd do. He'd warm up some of his mom's food in the kitchen and we would watch, among other things, community episodes. So that was like a really, like a reminder. And I I had some good laughs. Maybe it's Q's mom's cooking that makes Mm -hmm. me like community as much as I do too. You never know. Positive association. But I'd gotten out of it midway through the third season, but I definitely liked it. And then I'd heard around season four, sexual misconduct, allegations, allegations. And one writer in particular, whose name I had heard, she was a writer on on Community for more than one season, I believe, Megan Gans. She named herself publicly as a victim of this sexual misconduct. So it was interesting because it was a back and forth. He responded to her, you know, naming herself as a victim. He tried to apologize. Gans said, thank you for trying. I am not going to forgive you. And then, you know, he has a podcast called Harmontown. Naming a podcast after yourself like that also is suggestive of something Dan Harmon would do. But he goes into the details of everything he did wrong, which included the sexual misconduct, the sexual advances on Megan Gans in particular. And actually, he made advances on her in an interest to pursue a relationship with her, apparently. And when she turned him down, that's when he got ugly about it. He mistreated her after that. And obviously he's in a position of power. Ultimately, Rachel Gans accepted his apology. And I don't know if you remember this. She said his apology was a masterclass in how to apologize. And she, on Twitter, she was like, I recommend everybody listen to this apology on his podcast. That's huge because as we know, this is generally speaking, but there are many, many cases of white men just not knowing how to apologize. Mario Batali, Kevin Spacey, just Louis the C. K. world's worst Apollo, Louis C.K., just garbage apologies, can't even really be called apologies by the dictionary definition. So to write a masterclass, and you know, Megan Gens was the person who was, A, mistreated and the victim of his sexual misconduct, and B, refused to forgive him originally, And now forgives him and now tells other people it's a masterclass. It was really something I'm like, wow. And that's another thing. You don't, you don't hear apologies being uh, accepted that often. A, because they're not great apologies. And B, sometimes because the person's like, no, too little, too late. I don't care what you say. Nothing you're going to say is going to change my mind. So very interesting. I found that whole episode interesting and you can, yeah, you can look that up. Look up Dan Harmon apology and you'll find it.
0: And so I don't think my viewpoints of the show really are based on these things about him. You're right. It is good that Megan Gans did accept his apology and and they've kind of moved forward with that. But so I did want to give this show a chance because I said, you know, I don't really care for it. So this is what I did. I asked some of our friends to submit their favorite episodes and I watched them. So I'm going to tell people which ones I watch, but I've also seen many beforehand So the ones I've seen beforehand, the first one I've seen is Remedial Chaos Theory, which is season three, episode three, which is considered to be one of the best sitcom episodes of all time.
1: It's actually season three, episode four. Because I went to season three, I started watching three, and I'm like, this is not the right name, this is not the thing. So it's episode four. But what happens at the beginning of the episode, very weird, and I don't know what this is a reference to, community superfans can let us know, they knock on the door, it's Abed apartment where they're living together knock on the door for this housewarming party and the apartment says 304 or maybe it says 303 and she goes is it 303 or is it 304 i never remember which in you know industry speak when you say season 3 episode 3 that's 303 304 so i don't know if those two episodes are linked 03 and 04 i don't know if they're linked somehow and it's almost like a continuation i didn't watch 03 for this I watched 04, and in fact, I owe you a great thanks because I had the best morning full of laughter, Asif, I watched a couple of episodes in preparation. Well,
0: th- this episode, "Remedial Chaos Theory," it basically it's kind of like a multiverse type thing. So they're rolling a dice, and different multiverse kind of scenarios play out. And it's it's considered a very clever episode. I read someplace that Split Sider, this website, named it the best sitcom episode of all time, beating out the Simpsons episode "Marge Versus the Monorail," which Ooh, is wow. how did you feel? How did insanity. you feel about that? Awesome. Tell mean, us how you so, felt. So <laughs> but okay, again, I'm trying to give this show the benefit of the doubt. So I, I. seen that so people are always like you haven't seen this episode no i've seen every episode of community that people say is amazing so i've seen that one i've seen modern warfare where they do the paintball i've seen abed's uncontrollable christmas where they do like the christmas stop motion animation okay i've seen that i've seen digital estate planning where they turn into 8-bit video game characters i've seen epidemiology where they turn it it's a zombie invasion okay so i've seen all those before i even got to this list of, this is ones that people have to watch. So here's what I watched for this podcast. I watched Critical Film Studies. This is one where it's about my dinner with Andre. That's kind of, it's an homage to that and to Pulp Fiction. Season two, episode 19. And of course now maybe I wrote down these, these episode numbers wrong. So Paradigms of Human Memory, which is a very clever episode, which is, it's like a clip show, you know, on shows like happy days or whatever, they'd reminisce about old episodes, could kind of fill up an episode with old clips. But this is a a clip episode, but none of these things had occurred before. So they're remembering, oh, remember we went to that Old West saloon? And that never occurred before in the history of the show, but they're flashing back to it. Very clever. Lots of work involved. I watched Basic Rocket Science, which is about like this, it's like a, Apollo 13 simulator that's actually made by KFC. It's quite clever as well. The Science of Illusion, which is about April Fool prank that Britta does. Early 21st century romanticisms, which is Abed and Troy kind of going after this librarian and her story of dance where they do a Sadie Hawkins dance. And then Britta wants to do a Sophie B. Hawkins dance because she kind of misunderstands everything. (laughs) And Sophie B. Hawkins, the singer, appears. So I left out one that I that I watched, which is Basic Lupon Urology, which is season three. This is a Law & Order spoof. And basically, they just start the show like it's a Law & Order episode. It is amazing. It is so good. It's probably the best episode of the show I've seen. I just loved every bit of it. Now, do you know every title of every episode is supposed to be like a class you could take at community college, right? So it says mm-hmm. Basic Lupon Urology. Do you know why it's called that? No, I don't know what
1: lupine Lupine means wolf. Of course it does.
0: Lupin. Right. Lupin in French. Who's the creator of Law and Order? Do you know? Dick Wolf. And urology is the medical specialty involved with urinary tract. So I'm like, that is a very funny uh, title as well. So basically I watched all these. Okay. So now nobody can say, oh, you haven't seen the best episodes. I've seen like many episodes. So what is my problem with the show? I actually think the show is very clever. And I smirk a lot during these episodes but i don't laugh out loud very much i do sometimes but not that much and so it's just a clever show i think and sometimes i feel i think it may be dan Harmon. i think he writes in a way that is like look how smart i am look how clever i am and he is clever he is a smart guy but i shouldn't be thinking you're trying to show how clever you are and it's exemplified by Abed's character. Abed is this character played by Danny Pudi, who's always commenting on the fact that they're in a sitcom. Like, oh, we're doing this. It's a clip show. It's this. And I just don't find that, like, so what? That's not great. You've done that. I just don't get it. There's an episode where he's like, it's a bottle episode. It's a bottle episode. A bottle episode is a episode of TV where it's contained in one specific location and the characters stay there all the time, traditionally done to save money because they only need one set and they can kind of get all the filming done very quickly. A famous bottle episode is The Fly in Breaking Bad from several years ago.
1: But Asif, if he was trying to show you how brilliant he he is, Dan Harmon, would he lay it out there and spell it out through Danny Pudi's character every single episode? It's a bottle. You know what about it? Everyone can look up what a bottle is. That's fine. For me, it's just like some writer was like, would it be funny if Abed, every episode because of his Mm -hmm. Asperger's or whatever Mm -hmm. he's diagnosed with, constantly just has to call out everything as because he's so brutally honest about everything. He basically borderline sociopathic, lacks empathy just tells people everything that's happening, everything mm-hmm. he sees, comments mm-hmm. on it, tells her how he feels about the people. Doesn't really understand emotion. Would it be funny if he just constantly talked about the show mm-hmm. too? Like yeah. it's this, it's okay. this when everyone else would be like, dude, don't tell them. That's not a show of brilliance. If anything, if you were truly brilliant, you'd be like, I'm not going to spoon feed these idiot viewers. They're going to have to figure it that out. We're on doing their own a bottle episode. Bottle yeah. That's why yeah. I don't like the show
0: because it does stuff like this. And it's like, you're right. There's a more clever way to do it. Similarly, the other big problem I have with the show- What? I thought you were like, it's too clever. I thought no, you were like, Dan no, no, Harmon no, no. is Not trying to show me clever. how clever he is. It's, look how clever I am. That's the problem. Anyone who's doing that and I'm thinking, oh, you're trying to show me how clever you are? It
1: takes me out of it. Like, I just don't like that. But you felt this way about the show before you knew about Dan yeah, Harmon? Yeah. Or did you already no, know about Dan Harmon as soon as you started no, no, watching no. And that's why I'm like,
0: now that I see that he- has his hands in every single script and rewrites them. I can see why there's a very specific flavor to it. And I'm just guessing it's because of Dan Harmon. Maybe it's not, maybe it's just the show, like the way it's written, the way it's filmed. The other thing about it is I don't think the show capitalized on some of the actors as well as it should. And I think the scripts again are written in a certain voice that like, is Danny Pudi a, not a good actor or is he just, Playing this, I don't know. Playing this character that I find a bit bland, and Donald Glover is a great example. I mean, he is an amazing writer, an amazing actor. I just didn't really see it in the show. I don't know. I mean, that is twenty twenty hindsight. Yeah, that is sure. like
1: the benefit of knowing who Donald Glover is now. For all we know, Donald Glover wasn't a great actor then. These are all people, with the exception of Joel McHale and Chevy Chase, obviously. They're at the beginning of their careers, most of these people. And they are, st- I mean, Allison Bree, for God's sake, phenomenal. Yeah, she's actor. amazing. And yeah, you're right. Maybe that's true. Like, look at, for example, uh, Law and Order, the uh, Basic Lupine Urology episode. They bring Michael Ironside mm. and Michael K. Williams mm. in, who are. Phenomenal yeah. actors, rest in peace, Michael K. Williams, they kind of like dumb their craft down a little bit and kind of become the butt of their own jokes a little bit. You know, when Michael K. Williams is telling My- Michael Ironside, like there's two places where a man has a code in military and in prison. And I was in prison He becomes yeah, Omar. Yeah. No, he becomes was, Omar. He's making fun of himself. It's fantastic. Those are people who have achieved something and come down. These are people on the come up. Look, I don't want to make this about me. I get some, I'm very grateful for getting some emails about the show, sort of, oh, Ali, you were great, even though you had a very small role, that was great what you did. I don't think I could have done that 10 years ago. I didn't have sure. the confidence. I didn't have the life experience. I didn't. So who knows what Donald Glover or any of them were capable of? So the acting okay. thing, I'm not okay, sure. If fair enough.
0: Up. So just two more things to mention. By the way, Chevy Chase left the show, I mean, idiot, after uttering the N word on the set, In uh, November 2012, Uh, that's actually when he left the show.
1: In the early 80s, he used to fall down the Saturday Night Live studio stairs. Do you remember that prank he would do? I think there was some brain damage that started then, as well as the drug use that he was probably doing with... John Belushi and whoever I I mean, he's not well. There's something very clearly. I mean, I think
0: he's a pretty well known jerk. I think so, and yeah, he certainly proved it with saying the n word on set. Anyway, so I guess let me just wrap up by saying the final issue I have with the show is that in many episodes, not all of them. So don't. Come after me, you community lovers. Is that they all they try and like have kind of happy ending with some like the main character played by Joel McHale, um, kind of like winger. He kind of like comes around and they and they kind of have these happy endings, trying to be emotional. And I'm like, most of the time it does not land, and I find it very false. And the reason is because there's other shows that have been on at the time and since that I think do emotion better. So Parks and Recreation, The Office, even Brooklyn Nine-Nine, to be honest with you, does some of these emotional beats better, I think, even though it's kind of a slapstick, you know, joke a minute comedy. Whereas... The community, I just felt it was very unearned, and it doesn't it doesn't jive with the rest of the craziness that goes on, and the way Pierce is so insensitive to people, and Abed has this kind of, what, what? I don't know if it's, like you said, sociopathic Asperger's type personality. It just doesn't gel. I think they're trying to do too much at once. I don't think it works, and it reminds me of like, these guys are kind of jerks a lot of the time in the show, or they make fun of each other, and it reminds me of Seinfeld, and the Seinfeld, the rule, I believe, in the, in the writer's room was the that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David says, no hugging, no learning. So you remain jerks through the end and just follow through on that. And I thought, I just thought community, it did not work for me. I thought they were trying for too much that that didn't work. And in fact, it's proven by my two favorite characters on the show. My two favorite characters are none of the main cast. It's the Dean played by Jim Rash, who is hilarious. He's a great writer. You know, he won an Academy Award for writing The Descendants, that movie with George Clooney. And Ken Jeong's character of Chang. Like, those guys, I find the funniest. I laugh out loud with them the most. But it's because they're so absurd, it's almost like they get it. They get that they're supposed to be playing this super absurd, heightened reality. And of course, those characters don't gel with the sappy endings that they often have. So, that's basically it.
1: I love the idea that in the writing room at Seinfeld, No hugging, no what? No No learning. They don't learn from their- I love that instead of a Dan Harmon story circle, that's all that needs to be on the board. And so this is it.
0: it That's what goes back to the story circle, where if you go to Dan Harmon story circle, you have to have change. You return to your familiar situation and change. Uh, Jeff Winger's changed. He hasn't changed. Like, I know he changes from the first episode where he's like a total lawyer douchebag, but- I don't know. I don't see it. I think he tries to fit everything into this circle. I don't think it works all the time. So that's why I do, I think I just don't like Dan Harmon's writing.
1: I think this is the issue here. You have a Dan Harmon issue because in no other case are you watching a sitcom and then cross-referencing it with the showrunner creator's story writing style. Yes and no. I think what happened
0: was I had some problems with the show and then I had to really think in preparation for this episode about why I don't like it. And this is what I've come up with. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it has nothing to do with Dan Harmon, maybe you can be like us if he wasn't involved barely in a lot of these episodes you're talking about. Okay, that's fine, but I'm trying to put it all together. This is like my theory of why I don't like it, mm-hmm. because sometimes I watch and read uh, some stuff by this guy, Film Critic Hulk, who's like this film critic who used to write in the style of Hulk, like all caps and saying me like this. Anyway, he's a great writer, and he says there's things called these tangible details, where people kind of, they lock onto tan- these details that they think are, what's the matter?
1: Is he writing about tangible details as the Hulk? Yeah,
0: he is, like, such a brilliant (laughs) writer, but he writes in all caps. Like, it's just, it's a crazy thing. Me no like... Mean you not know, like tangible. Basically, he, he'll pull out something. A famous one is from Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire, where he goes all emo and he like dances and like plays piano. And he just, you know, he becomes emo because he has this venom symbiote inside him. And people are like, yeah, that movie sucks because of emo Tobey Maguire. And he's like, that's not the reason the movie sucks. But you're glomming onto that tangible detail to try and explain away what's going on. So you have to go deeper than that. So I'm trying to go deeper Maybe I just don't like the show. It's not that I don't like it. It's clever. It's a good show. It's well-made. Like, I I don't want to come off as too negative. It is a very good show. It's well-made. I just don't find that funny. And in the end, a comedy has to be funny.
1: Well, here's the thing. This is what I'm reminded of, right? I like cake. I don't have a huge sweet tooth, but I like cake. I like cheese quite a bit. And I hate Cheesecake. And people are always like, no, no, no. Have you been to the Snowden Deli in Montreal? You got to try there, strawberry cheese. Yeah, I've been everywhere, okay? I've been everywhere. So now I'm Asif Doja. I'm like, I've done it all. I've seen it. I've put in my effort. I've had mango cheesecake. I've had chocolate cheesecake. I've had it, you know, low fat, high fat. I've had it all. Just don't like cheesecake. However, the difference is when I'm talking about cheesecakes that I've had, I'm not giggling with glee. If our listeners go back 15 minutes and listen to you talking about her story of dance, the Sophie B. Hawkins episode, you were giggling and shaking with how much you remembered how funny it was. So I don't know, man. I think you think of clever ideas, but I think it's still having a positive effect on you in some way. Law & Order episode is absolutely phenomenal. The remedial chaos, I like it. They've set it up too high, which also happened with Strawberry Cheesecake, by the way. They, the expectations were way too high that this thing was going to blow me away. Now they're comparing it to, you know, the best Simpsons episode of all time. You're not going to be into that. But I don't know. I watched this morning and I laughed out loud multiple times. I also feel like there's just something else I watched this morning. There's a scene in Arrested Development, all right, for a variety of reasons, just thinking about certain things. I was like, let me look up that scene. It's a three-minute scene And it's Will Arnett's character, Job, talking, you know, he got married and he doesn't remember. And he meets his real-life wife, actually, Amy Poehler at the time, and they get married. And he's, like, pretending like it's going to be fine. And then Jason Bateman, Michael Bluth, comes up to him and goes, what's her name, Job, quickly. He goes, (laughs) Crindy. Name's not Crindy, Job. He looks at this paper that's come in. He's being sued. He goes, Saul Zensman. No, that's the lawyer's name. He can't remember his wife's name, who he married in the three minutes, the amount of things that happen, the amount of comedy they cram in, that's the tone. That's the pace. I just feel like community was one of those shows cram in a ton of things, not as cleverly as you arrested. Just insulted
0: arrested development by that. I was like, no, you spent it's, it's three, it's three,
1: three minutes talking about a
0: different show. I mean, because I'm just thinking about that scene from arrest development. It's so good. And, of course it's clever. The writers on Arrested Development were amazing. They're not hammering you over the head with how clever they're trying to be and bringing it back like- That's a, true. It doesn't know, feel like that lamp, that. I mean, I don't yeah, feel- They call it lampshading, right? Like calling attention to what's going on and the tropes that you're doing. I don't know. I think you made my point by talking about a different sitcom.
1: Yes. No. No. <laughs> I think there's- End section. Dude, it's about pacing. <laughs> you, you wish end section. He's going to edit this out later like a jerk. I'm talking about the intention of a show to cram certain like You know, it doesn't move at that, like a sitcom on a scene stage, Mm -hmm. right? Like a three cam. uh, It doesn't move like that. It moves very fast. I think they just want to move fast. So it's a pacing thing. They try to cram a bunch of things. You have all these characters with a hundred different places to go. And as you say they still have to have some authenticity to them so the the people on the edge you know the meth guy i can't remember his name the principal the spanish teacher these guys are all really wild men angry spanish teacher who'll cut your throat if you don't learn spanish and stuff there's no authenticity to them as you say so they can't be part of these moments that are trying to be genuine but you also have people who are Borderline psychopaths and sociopaths. So how genuine can it all get? Well,
0: okay. I'm going to, like, I, we don't want to keep on going. Given
1: the world they've created. I don't know.
0: If you look at Arrested Development, actually, they used to be a bit more touchy-feely at the beginning. You remember the whole story with Marta? No No touching. No touching with Marta in the first season sure. and they even played like John Hyatt's Cry Love at the beginning about and then maybe Job and Michael will reconcile and they quickly realized that's not what this sitcom is about and they moved away from that similarly a joke a minute sitcom is like 30 Rock it's jokes constantly coming at you and they don't try to do the same thing that that community is. so you gave two very good examples Oh, I, well I, actually I gave 30 Rock but I just gave two very good examples <laughs> of shows I could have of done shows it. that realize that this is not the way to, they don't mesh together and community never realized that. So now end of story, edit section, (coughs) telemedicine.
1: All right. Well, you got opinions that are unwarranted and I probably have some of the same about telemedicine. So let's, Start talking about this. Obviously, the pandemic has led to a lot of doctors, some by necessity, some by necessity, and then by choice, signing up wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. with what they call, you know, e-consults. So either online, so via Zoom or via phone calls. I've got some opinions about it. I think I'll share them as we go through. We were heavy on the opinions. Yeah, that's true. The last block. But let's talk about this virtual medicine. Yeah. What is the state of virtual medicine? What are the stats on this? How much of medicine in Canada, or I don't know if you have North American stats, yeah. what are we looking at? What's the landscape? So
0: let's take a step back for a second. So there are lots of what? different terms, virtual medicine, telemedicine, telehealth. I think for our purposes, we're just going to use them all as synonyms. There may be some slight differences, but I think we'll just simplify it. So what do we mean by this? There's different kind of methods of it. A lot of times we're thinking about what you're talking about video visits or telephone visits, but there's more to it. So I'll give you some examples. One is e-consults. You mentioned when we talk about e-consults in medicine, we're actually talking about kind of an asynchronous consult that a family doctor say will get from a specialist. So I'll just give my especially for example. Family doctor has a pediatric neurology question. They don't really think they should page the person on call. It's not that urgent. And they're also not sure they should just refer somebody maybe unnecessarily or, you know, go on a wait list when it's not really necessary. So they basically just send an email to a central pool and they get assigned to a, specialist who reads the question and the history of the patient and they respond back. And there may be a little back and forth like, oh, do you think I should order a test? And then, no, I think you would hold off for an hour or maybe consider an MRI in this situation. So that's the e-consult. The key is it's asynchronous and it's usually a physician to physician consultation. Okay, so that's pretty well established in North America. Another type of virtual medicine that you may not have thought about is remote monitoring. And I didn't see this done too much in Canada during the pandemic, but it was used in the States. So you can imagine if you have an intensive care units with many beds, especially you think about when New York City was kind of inundated and it was so busy and, and you don't even have enough nurses to monitor all the patients. During During the the pandemic, pandemic, yeah, in in 2020. So what you could do is you could do remote ICU monitoring because in an ICU you're hooked up, you know, sadly, Ellie, I, I know you've been in ICUs before with family members. So, you know, you're hooked up to a million machines and a million monitors, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, all these things are being monitored continuously. So do you have to be in the room with the patient to monitor that, or could you monitor those things remotely? So that's what was done a lot of times and still is being done in the U.S., mainly in the U.S. Like I guess I don't see it that much in Canada, but this remote ICU monitoring. And you could say, okay, there's probably pros and cons to that. Another thing that we're doing a lot in neurology is we do EEG tests, which are brainwave tests where we look for seizure activity. And you can just come in, you know, get that test, come in as an outpatient, come in for half an hour, get the test done. Or sometimes the very sick patients, we can do remote EEG monitoring as in monitoring it, or prolonged EEG monitoring in the like an ICU setting, but I don't have to be in the hospital to look at that. I can look at it from my desk here in my house. And in fact, in the US, when they have this EEG monitoring is a big moneymaker. So hospitals want to have continuous monitoring and continuous reading of the EEGs. So they will hire what are called neurophysiologists to monitor this information in real time And they are not in your hospital. They could be somewhere else, and they may have these remote monitoring stations where they're able to monitor what's going on. So that's another type of virtual medicine, which is increased. Then there's patient-initiated virtual medicine. So this would be like, I haven't really experienced this with my patients, but I guess you can do a chat if you're, especially in the U.S., if you're trying to get your insurance or whatever, you can get into a chat with either a live person or more likely these days a bot but what we see more is asynchronous messaging with our patients through what's called, in our electronic medical record, is called MyChart, where they can send a message to either their physician or the representative of the physician, so the nurse or the secretary, And they'll get a message back. So it's basically like an email communication. And we use that all the time with our patients. So like, you know, they have a question, oh, you know, I think I might have this side effect for the medicine. So they send a message to my nurse. My nurse looks at it. We talk about it. Okay, well, maybe they could try this to manage that side effect. And that's also a virtual medicine as well. So those are the different kinds. But then the one that I think you were getting at was these video visits. Like basically, Ali and I are doing this podcast on Zoom right now. This could be a medical... Visit And then you could get really angry at me for spending half of our time talking about the television show community.
1: Right. And I would rather be in person because I always like to check your tonsils before we start our, I like to take a tongue depressor and see what's going on in there and see, not a real (laughs) talker. But let me just do this little test.
0: Yeah. And so- these video visits, you were asking how frequently they've been going on. And if you look at all telehealth, there was a survey, and I tried to look for data, because we're all about the data in this one, evidence, from 2022, because certainly things changed post-pandemic. In the early days of the pandemic, we're talking April, May 2020. We couldn't see patients in person. We weren't allowed because there was a lockdown, as people might remember. There was a lockdown across the world. Does anybody remember that? I don't know, it was a while ago, it was a while ago. So we had to convert to all virtual visits. And so we had to ramp up very quickly and learn how to use these technologies. So clearly it changed. So in 2022, J.D. Power did a survey and they found that 67% of study participants had used telehealth in the past year. So in 2022, in the past year, so two thirds of people and only a third had utilized telehealth in 2019 before the pandemic. So quite a big increase those who received telehealth services, 94% said they would definitely or probably use telehealth in the future. And when they were asked about the reasons why they liked it, 61% said that the main reason was they liked it was for convenience, quick service, and easier access to health information. So it's definitely being used a lot more right now. And, you know, there are pros and cons to telemedicine. So I don't know. Do you want to talk about the pros first or the cons first? I'm sure you have your own thoughts as you said on it. Let me
1: tell you where my lens sits. I was during the pandemic to, you know, the pandemic giveth and it taketh, as I always say, what it gave me was the opportunity to do a fair amount of work, Ontario, the province we live in film and production ramped up here. They were very, very strict. COVID protocols, COVID testing, et cetera. So I was testing two to three times a week. I was on a number of different projects, some of them pretty steady work over the span of like three months, some of them a month, then just one episode, but over a couple of weeks. I did a lot of COVID testing and I was going to this particular clinic where they would test and those results were sent to wherever, a lab or they did them in the back there. And within a few hours, I could see if I was negative and then I could report to work the next day. Now, what happened was this clinic, I mean, clinic may be too a strong word, this little sort of health center would do this with the help of these, it was always women for whatever reason. They were not nurses, but they were people who put a swab in your nose and then asks you a few questions and then, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're off. What happened for some reason, which maybe you can enlighten me on, doctors started entering the picture via Zoom. The most useless presence of a doctor I have yet to see. I've never seen anything more useless in my life. We would have to wait sometimes. We're like, okay, this used to take a total of a minute. Now I'm waiting for this. Now we have to get this doctor here. So then the doctor would come on on Zoom and be like, hi, Ali. So your name is Ali Hassan? I'm like, yeah, just like I just told this person who is here live with me. That's my name. And you are getting this COVID test for work? Yeah, just like I told this person just now. That's what I'm doing. And any symptoms Any of anything? Nope. Just like I just told this person right here, nothing. Great. I didn't sound as rude as that, but in my head, I was like, what are you doing here? And then there came a point where I would just ask this, you know, health, per, this person who was helping me live. I'm like, what is that? Why do we need that doctor? And they would just shrug their head, shoulders a bit. Like, I don't know. So you have doctors butting in where they're not needed. And then when they're needed, for example, with my mom, I don't want to get too dark here in the podcast, but. My mom was a woman who trusted the medical system through and through. Anything's happening with her. She doesn't feel right. She would say, I'm going to go see Dr. Sangani. I'm going to go see Dr. Ra. And She always went opposite of my father. A father was more like, can't trust these doctors. Every time you go to them, they find mm-hmm. something wrong with you. Yeah, dad, that's the doctor's fault. You know? And then my mother would be like, no, I'm not. Something's wrong with my breathing. I'm just going to go check, check it out. Meanwhile, my mother during the pandemic gets diagnosed with stage four cancer. That would not have happened mm-hmm, with my mm-hmm. mother. That just would not have happened. My mother would have been stage one, stage two diagnosis, had she been able to see her doctor. Doctors just not available and overrun as well, right? It's a pandemic. A lot of people having a lot of concerns, a lot of people coming, thinking they might have COVID. There was a whole thing like, don't come to the hospital, but no one could see my mother. If anyone had seen the various sort of like lumps forming on her chest and all that, they would have been, this is Meanwhile, my mom was like, oh, I put a hot water bottle on it and the compress helped and it went down. Not realizing these are like, you know, tumors mm-hmm. in her body. And then she died. She never even met her cancer doctor. It was all on, she never met him. Wow. That was her cancer doctor. When she died, never heard from him again. Just another death in his list of people who've died. It was really like. Deeply unsatisfactory medical care. So that is what it is. But today, now in 2023, if I hear doctors say that they're like, oh, yeah, virtual care is just as good as regular care. And I I love doing virtual care. Just watch what you say, because one day when you're replaced Mm -hmm. with an AI, people are not going to have a lot of sympathy for you when doctors are homeless and on the street that's going to be your fault don't say things like that out loud that you think it's just as good because it just simply isn't
0: that's a really good point ai we should probably do a whole other episode on ai use. we will
1: oh that's but, coming that's coming that's
0: rich rich, rich stuff yeah ground. but yeah you're right because if you're saying well i don't need to see you in person then you're like yeah, so then do I need to actually, A, see a doctor, or why do I need to see you? Why can't we see a doctor in a different country who charges less money to, say, our government or in the U.S.? And already this happens with something called teleradiology. So teleradiology is because this is for radiologists who read x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, Right. They don't need to be with you in the room. They are remote in general, right? They could read the scan from their home. They could read it from wherever. Now, one of my really good friends is a radiologist. He's probably like, no, it's very important for us to talk <laughs> to the consultants and have an interaction with them. I totally agree. But some people, especially if they're like, well, we can contract people in a different country, maybe in India or something like that, to read the radiology reports. Now we get somebody all you know, 24 hours a day reading them. And probably charges less money. So it's a cost savings to either the government in Canada or to like an HMO in, in the US. But then you're like, well, are those people qualified? But this is the slippery slope we get into when we're like, no, we don't really need to see you. We can do it all virtually. Oh, really? You can? So this is the slippery slope that we're happening. So you're absolutely right. But Ali, there is some benefits too. So we have to really mention the benefits of it. And one of the things is.
1: I agree. I agree. I should say it that I understand that. Anything that takes a burden off healthcare yeah. professionals in a safe and understandable way, okay, fine, but some things are just not they just if especially if somebody needs a specialist, you should be able to see them in person so that you can be like, "Oh, I think I' better send you for this. This is time is of the essence here. you really need Yes to be and seeing. no. I'll give
0: you an example of where it can benefit people. So with stroke, and we again, we can do a whole episode later on on stroke. Time is of the essence in stroke because we now have medicines that can get rid of the clot. Either they like disintegrate the clot, or we can retrieve the clot and take it out. There's many different ways to do this.
1: These are above and beyond blood thinners. These, These are yeah, different yeah. Things,
0: all too. The medicines used called thrombolytics, which kind of, like I said, dissolve or disintegrate the clot. And now we have mechanisms where you can just go in with a wire and take the clot out physically, like it's called clot retrieval. And so it's very important to get people treatment as soon as possible because, as we say in neurology, time is brain. If you're waiting, you're costing people their actual brain cells. So the problem is if you're living in downtown Toronto, you have access to lots of hospitals, you can get them, people seen very quickly, but what if you live eight hours north of Toronto in the middle of nowhere? How are you going to get the same quality of care? And this has been going on for probably over 20 years is this idea of telestroke. So basically, someone with a stroke goes to the emergency department in a very small town, say, they will call one of the big centers. They'll already have a CT scan. They'll go over the examination of the patient with the neurologist who's on the other end, and they'll look at the CT scan, and they'll say, I think you should give them this treatment or not. You should ship them down here. They'll give advice on that. And when you look at that, these Telestroke models of care have been shown to be safe, effective, and improving getting people this thrombolysis, the cloth-busting drugs, reducing hospital stay, reducing mortality, and reducing disability. So it works. It helps people. So one idea of telemedicine is it helps people who live in remote areas, so rural areas. It helps them have the same privileges as urban people in terms of seeing specialists. But in, the,
1: in that scenario that you just outlined, that person is still going to see a doctor. Absolutely. The tele part absolutely. is between the small you know, town and the big city, This guy's city, smart, right? guys. This guy is smart. You're absolutely right. I decided I'd listen today.
0: You know what I mean? <laughs> They're seeing a physical Connected. doctor. Exactly. Okay. So you're absolutely right. But a couple other good things about it. Is there's a reduced risk of infection, right? That was a big thing in COVID. That's why we had to do it. So that's important. And there's also, you cannot underestimate convenience. I'll just be honest with you guys. Telemedicine, virtual medicine is not going away ever because of its convenience to patients. Sometimes I need to see my family doctor in person. Sometimes he just needs to call me and say, hey, I got the blood results, looks pretty good. I'm gonna send you for a repeat blood test in six months. That's it. Do I need to drive? Yeah. An Why would hour, you work? Then a- park, park, pay for parking, and then people come see me. They have to wait, and then there's a delay, and the, and the kids take time off school, parents take time off work. I mean, or I could just do a Zoom call with my patient at school, parents at work, the other parents also at work. Let's talk about it. Okay, we're done in fifteen minutes. They're happy.
1: The head of parking at your hospital that's is very right. upset with that's you. Right right. Now, that's right. That's right. We, we should, should probably do a whole talk out. about
0: parking. Parking is a huge oh, moneymaker in hospitals in Canada.
1: Yeah, well, telehealth is going to get in the way of yeah. that. But anyway, and there is the news.
0: potential for cost savings with telemedicine, not just in terms of the things we talked about. There's a very interesting article for your business-minded types. You know, Ali has an MBA, as he. You don't actually ever brag about that, but he does have an MBA. There's an article. That's because I
1: barely, <laughs> barely got it. It's, there's really nothing to brag about.
0: There's an article in Harvard Business Review where they talk about how cost savings could be improved, clinical care could be improved, access to care could be improved by just looking at various opportunities. So basically they're saying telemedicine can reduce trips to the ER. It can reverse the chronic disease crisis of things like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, hypertension, because you can see people more frequently through telemedicine. Uh, the address that you can address disparities, rural versus urban, and you can see specialists and experts faster. So this all makes sense. And I think those are the advantages. And I think patients want virtual medicine. That was evidenced by that JD Power survey. People like it. They want it. They want to be able to contact their doctors quickly. And if it results in you being able to see patients more effectively and efficiently, then it
1: makes sense. Well, I don't underestimate the times when it will be convenient for patients. What are doctors saying? Also loving it in general? I think some of them do, but,
0: you know, as always, there can be too much of a good thing. I think when you have stories, and I do have stories, just like you said, of people who've never seen their doctor, it's only been telemedicine or virtual, never laid a hand on them. And it's family doctors Lay and specialists. A hand
1: on them might not be the best choice of words. Yeah, sorry, uh,
0: sorry. It sounds like you're beating <laughs> the crap out of your patients, but yes. That's not really acceptable. You know, I, people who go see a cardiologist, I'm like, oh, how was the cardiologist appointment? Did they check your blood pressure like I did today? Well, no, it was a purely telephone appointment. I'm like, but you have to examine your heart. Like that is part of the consultation. You know, so I think there I'm are extremes about, okay. of this. There's a couple other things to mention too. I'll get back to maybe what doctors think about it in a second, but there's consent for doing virtual. You remember when Zoom first started? Zoom bombing, right? People would just type in a Zoom address, and that show up in your, in your Zoom chat.
1: I've got five minutes on stage oh, about Zoom bombing. I remember it very fondly. Like not fondly because it was a good thing. It was yeah. ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense that Zoom succeeded So you have to that.
0: consent people to be like, you know, we are, like for us, we use a healthcare version of Zoom, which is supposed to be more secure, but you still have to tell people, like consent people to doing that. And also to consent people to, for them to realize you have to tell people, this is not the same as an in-person visit, right? Like that has to be, you know, a part of the consent process. And then people should be allowed to say- Well, I don't want this then, but that's not off. that second person often offered. And then same thing with patient privacy. Again, we mentioned Zoom bombing, but Ali, if I'm doing a telemedicine appointment from my house and my kid, this never happens to me or my wife, so I'm just telling you it's never happened and it wouldn't happen, walks by in the background, what's that? You can't do that. You can't walk by and see who my patient is. Like that is completely inappropriate. Even doing telemedicine in the same office space as another physician is like, that physician Mm -hmm. shouldn't have access to see who you're talking to. So then do you have to use a headset? Do you have to use those rectangles that go around your screen so you can't see what's on somebody's screen?
1: That is a wild element that I did not even consider. you have to
0: always think about all these things in terms of privacy. Mm -hmm. Because we make privacy such a big deal in the hospital, but what about using virtual medicine? And then there's this <laughs> bigger issue which you're talking about. And I think there's the potential for malpractice issues that you have to be very careful about. So as a physician, you should be mindful of this. And every time you're seeing a patient, you should think to yourself, you know, you're seeing someone virtually, is this appropriate or do I need to see them? And one of my colleagues was a kind of a pioneer in terms of people I know personally in virtual medicine. He was doing it years before the pandemic. He said, it's Basically, this just helps you triage when you see somebody virtually. You can see somebody virtually and be like, oh, yeah, they're pretty good. You know, we should get a scan. We should do these things. Or I need to see you in the office because what you're telling me is very concerning. And so you can use it to help guide who needs it and who doesn't. So it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And my friends who are family doctors who are good family doctors, I said, what do you think about virtual medicine? And our, our province wants to put caps on virtual medicine. They're like, I don't care. They're like, because I'll see someone virtually if it's appropriate. If it's not, I bring them into the office. Like that's the way it works. That's how my family doctor works. And that's how we do it in neurology. So for us, basically, if you're a new patient in most circumstances, not all, but I would say vast majority, you need to come into the hospital to be examined because us examining people and doing a neurologic examination is part of our assessment. Just like I think it's the same with cardiology or rheumatology, these doctors who see patients who have bones and joints, right? They have to examine you. An orthopedic surgeon, and has to examine you to know what the problem is and what they're gonna do. But say I see somebody for that and say they're having migraine headaches and I've done an examination and they're fine. Say they even get an MRI and it's normal. My future appointments can be all virtual because we've established that you have a normal examination, you've had a normal scan me, you coming in for me to examine you again. Is that really going to change? I think probably not. It depends if someone has something else like multiple sclerosis or a brain tumor. It does make a difference if I examine them next time. So then I have to. So for us, that's how we kind of do it. We're fine with doing telemedicine for a follow up patient because it's often more convenient. And again, I have patients who come from Nunavut in The far north of Canada, and they come down to our hospital. I'm going to make them come down just for me to like just see them when it could have easily been done virtually. Like, you have to also take into consideration that these patients have to take several, maybe flights down, several days off work. Like, you have to keep that in mind as well. So, I think there's basically a balance. I think like in everything in life, there's good and bad, but I think physicians really have to think to themselves, am I doing what's in the best interest of the patient by seeing them virtually?
1: There's another element that's come to mind. I have a variety of friends over the years who've done what are called locums. You'll correct me if I'm wrong with the definition, but locum is basically a short stint at a hospital if you are some kind of specialist typically. So some hospital... And usually they're not the big cities. Nobody's yeah. ever done a locum in a big yeah. city from I what mean, I know. Sometimes so you replace somebody on a, like friend, a leave, like a
0: mat leave. So you could be doing a locum in a big city. But, a but most of the time when sure. you say a locum, you're going to maybe a more remote or smaller place for a certain period right. of time. You're not permanently there. So we
1: have a friend who goes to uh, Northern Ontario and I think it's once a month, once every six weeks. And, you know, for him, it's like the town is ready for him. The town has like been referred to him and they've got, they're lined up ready. Like, oh, this guy, this specialist is coming to town. We need to go see him. And so he's got a pretty crazy schedule for the week that he's up there. And then he's gone for six weeks. So then those people have to be like, yeah, there's nothing. The doctor will be back in six weeks. For locums, then, will locums become hybrid as well? Have they become hybrid where you can also just set aside more time for people to quote unquote, see the doctor. That would make a lot of
0: sense, right? Or you could pre-see them beforehand
1: and then you know who I have to see when I go
0: up there. Quicker appointment. Right? Again, just, it's a good idea to make things more efficient. Now, the difference with locums, they often want to go there, do their work and leave. Because another good thing that you could do based on your suggestion is you go up there and then you do your follow-up for the patient when you're back home, say in Toronto. But the problem is most locums want to go there, do their work, and leave, and not have to worry about the patients. So you know maybe that could be done, but I, I, I'm not sure all locums like to do that. Okay. Yeah, Ali. Like I said, I think it's here to stay, but I think it has to be used judiciously. How about
1: that? Okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's a blend, and as long as you know you were quite careful to say. To mention the benefit to the patients as long as that's the focus and not the benefit to the doctors i think that should if that remains the focus i think you know hopefully it's a good thing and as you say it's not going anywhere so we got to make the most of this thing
0: So that's our show for today. Let us know what you guys thought. A lot of arguing in the first half. The second half, we were a bit more conciliatory. Let us know what you guys thought. <laughs> Dr. at Comedian at gmail.com. Reach out to us on social media. Dr. V. Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are everywhere.
1: We put the verses in doctor versus comedian today, which was, we don't don't debate that that much
0: actually. So this was good. so that's why we purposely picked a topic like that, where we definitely have a difference of opinion. We have a slight difference of opinion on virtual medicine as well, but I think we came to a nice
1: conclusion. Kumbaya, right? Kumbaya. Also, we do enjoy here. I'm going to speak for both of us, Asif. You typically tell me when we've gotten letters and I enjoy reading emails and notes we get. If you have a comment, Please share that with us. Sometimes we'll read them on air. I was going to say, there's no air. There's no airwaves. What is it on the well, podcast? On, waves?
0: I guess it's not on airwaves. It's not on It's on, on the airwave from your it is. phone to your Bluetooth headphones. Like there's air there. Yeah, there you so,
1: have. you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, really boy. pushing it. Somebody's calling somebody an airhead and I don't appreciate it. That is it. So, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a mm-hmm. rating please recommend us to friends who you think would enjoy this podcast we are pretty excited about all the shows we have lined up in the future as you know i worried at first i'm like will we be able to do you know more than 20 of these Sky's the limit. Every episode, in fact, us, if just in today's episode, you're like, yeah, yeah, we should yeah, do a parking. We, just, we should do one. I mean, it's just this thing just kind of like explodes. We grow like a fungus, you might say. And so hey, a
0: medical another episode we could do about fungus. fungus. Perfect. But remember mm-hmm. that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.